1: And full throttle is half the fun. Where you can sink a putt, raise a glass, and there's always room for one more round. Ocean City, Maryland. Somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at
2: oceocean.com.
1: Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. Later in the pod, you'll hear John Lovett's conversation with Congresswoman Lauren Underwood, who stopped by Crooked Headquarters this week. Before that, we're going to talk about the news from why Democrats are embracing ideas like eliminating the Electoral College and the filibuster, to Trump's new strategy around a potential Mueller report, to the latest on the candidates looking to beat the president in 2020. On the new episode of Pod Save the World, Tommy talks about online extremism with Charlie Wartzel of the New York Times. On Keep It, the gang talked about the new Elizabeth Holmes documentary, and they interviewed Busy Phillips of Busy Tonight. Tickets are still available for our shows in New England, in Boston, and Concord. You can get them at crooked.com slash events. Uh, If you live in Boston, you might also be seeing a promo video that involves Tommy and me teaching Lovett how to speak in a Boston accent might be coming to a Facebook page near you. It's uh, it's worth checking out. (laughs) Um, All right. Let's start with the news. Uh, So over the last few weeks, a lot of the Democratic presidential candidates have been talking a lot about uh, what I will call small-D Democratic reforms. Um, During a CNN town hall this week, Elizabeth Warren endorsed eliminating the Electoral College. Uh, Multiple candidates have talked about adding seats to the Supreme Court or instituting term limits on justices. They've talked about statehood for D.C. and Puerto Rico. They've talked about getting rid of gerrymandering and making it easier to vote. Um, And you might have heard me nag Cory Booker about getting rid of the filibuster in our interview this week. And uh, he did change his position a little, saying he's not uh, closed the door on it. Um, Dan, why do you think a big discussion about these democratic reforms is happening now in this campaign in a way that it hasn't in... Any other presidential campaign I can remember, and why is it so important? Why why should people care about these seemingly unconnected set of proposals? Um,
0: I I like that you call them small D democratic reforms as opposed to uh, Soros funded socialist power grabs.
1: Yeah, I thought uh, you know I'm a I'm a messaging guy. So <laughs> good job,
0: good job. <laughs> um, I think that these this set of issues has risen to the top. For a couple of reasons, one is there is sort of a homogeneity of on policy issues where people are pretty close to each other on what they would do if they were president, and the area of distinction is how they would get those things done. And I think these this discussion uh, comes from the fact that both Trump's election and the behavior of Mitch McConnell and the Republicans both before Trump's election and certainly after Trump's election, has shown that there are fundamental flaws in our political system, that the system itself is based on this notion that you would have two parties operating in equally good faith, trying to achieve different visions for the country, that you would have people who would be president or a Senate leader who would be – would put patriotism above, you know, profit making or lining their own pockets and that people would just abide, would naturally abide by some set of good behavior. Um, and we now know that's not true. We know that the Republican party, uh, both through Trump, but also before Trump have exploited the loopholes in the system to push forward a essentially plutocratic, um, minority rule in this country. And something has to be done about it, because the system can't sustain a world in which the voices of the majority of Americans are diminished by a set of anti-democratic rules and laws in this country.
1: I think that last point is is key. I mean, we now have one political party that's established minority rules by maintaining a set of anti-democratic rules, laws, and institutions. Uh, the last two Republican presidents won elections without winning the popular vote. Republicans held on to the House of Representatives for so long because they got to draw congressional districts and basically pick their voters. Uh, Republicans have an advantage in the Senate because their voters, as polarization has continued, now live in rural, mostly uh, sparsely populated states. Um, Plus, in addition to that, there's a rule called the filibuster, which says that nothing can get passed past the Senate without 60 votes. So that is going to benefit the party. That represents more states, especially more sparsely populated states. And between the two presidents who lost the popular vote and the Republican Senate leader who represents the population of Kentucky, uh, those those three men were able to install four extremely conservative justices to the Supreme Court. That is the situation in our country right now, that one party using a bunch of laws and institutions and rules has established Minority rule in a country and so the majority of people in this country when they go to vote their voices are not being heard like they could because of all these other rules and institutions and because by the way I mean the the thing that's really driving this is that as the, the way that the parties have sorted themselves over the last couple decades means that Democrats are increasingly living in densely populated urban areas and Republicans are living in sparsely populated rural areas and so the states that comprise those rural areas, are having more power, and their politicians that they're electing having more power in Washington. And if this continues this way, and we do not do anything about it, it is extremely unlikely the Democrats will ever win 60 votes in the Senate, that we will ever be able to pass any kind of progressive majority. We could continue to see popular vote losers become the president of the United States, and we could continue for a generation to have a Supreme Court where no Democratic president and, and and thus the voters that elected that Democratic president ever have a say in who their Supreme Court justice is. It's not great, Dan.
0: No, it's not great. And <laughs> like obviously we are biased. We we are progressives. We want progressive policies to be the law in this country. That's all true. But I think we you just have to take a step back and look at this through just a nonpartisan lens, which is what is better – for democracy, that we hang on to these outdated, anachronistic, archaic norms that were written at a time in which we were 13 colonies and not uh, a large country of 300-some million Americans, or we change the rules so that people, that the actual majority of Americans get to have a say in their government. Because I can tell you yeah. that what will be deeply damaging to American democracy, as flawed as it has been in history, but as we know it, is if generations of a progressive majority are ruled by a conservative minority because of how the Supreme Court is constructed, because of the Electoral College, because of filibuster and how the Senate is done. And that. That is dangerous, and the argument should not be what is best for Democrats or Republicans. It is what does the majority want, and then it is for the Democrats and Republicans, or whatever other parties may come to exist one day, that to argue for what that is. Because the Republicans had a choice after they lost the 2008 election; they could develop a set of policies that were broadly appealing, or they could change the rules to diminish the voices of the people who wanted progressive policies. And so they just, instead of trying to win the game, they changed the rules. And I think large swaths of the public and large swaths of Democratic elected officials in the Senate in particular are completely numb to what is happening in this country, and that is deeply dangerous.
1: Yeah, and look, the general thrust of American history has been towards reforms, constitutional amendments, and laws that give more people more of a voice in this country. That is, we, we it, There was one point where we didn't have people... Uh, directly elect the president. They direct they you know, uh, and so the electors and the Electoral College uh, elected the president. Then we changed that so people have a choice to uh, f- people can vote directly for the president. We used to have a situation where people couldn't directly vote for senators, <laughs> right? And so like, and and then not to mention you know c- uh, amendments to the Constitution that protected voting rights, that gave citizenship to everyone, that gave women suffrage, uh, that gave African American suffrage and, and equal rights, right? Like every reform. Uh, and, and law, or at least the general sweep of them, has been towards the general direction of giving more people more of a voice. And I think that if, if Democrats argue that, that's what we have to keep in mind. You're absolutely right. It's not about giving one party an advantage over the other. Um, if we have a system where the majority of the people in this country um, are represented adequately, and those people are Republicans but because Republicans have policies that more people like, then fine. But that's not what's happening right now, you know? Um, It's the the exact opposite. So the question is, do voters care about these reforms? And if not, how do we make them care?
0: They probably don't care, at least with the same level of passion that we apparently care about it. Um, But I think the reason that... You know, you were uh, just nagging Cory Booker, and that we have raised this a bunch of times. And I talked to Pete Buttigieg about it, and Tommy talked to Elizabeth Warren. And the reason we raise this, I think, is because we have a certain perspective, which is we all sat in that White House and tried to figure out how we take the things that Barack Obama ran on, and a significant majority of Americans voted for, and turn that into actual policy. How do you deliver on those campaign promises? And I think this discussion around the filibuster, the Electoral College, what you're doing in the Supreme Court is all a, – it's a proxy for a, a more important question. It's what is your theory of change? How are you right. going to, to succeed where others have failed? How are you going to take these promises and turn them into policy? And I think voters care probably about that larger question and are interested in that larger question – more so than the sort of the details of how you get there. But it's like, why are you going to be different? Why are you going to be able to enact change that others have failed? And I think that uh, is something that voters do care about.
1: And look, and and I was saying this to Cory Booker, right? Like what's driving anger, disgust with politics, cynicism, apathy, people turning away from the political system is gridlock in Washington. The fact that Washington never seems to get anything done. This was true When Barack Obama started his race in 2007, we saw it throughout his presidency. We have seen it recently. We saw it in 2016. Like, people are angry that nothing ever seems to get done. Pundits treat that like people are upset that everyone's yelling at each other and there's no bipartisanship. I think people care even less about bipartisanship than they do. They just want action from Washington. They want to see that the people they're electing are actually solving their problems. And my concern is... If a, if a Democrat gets elected in 2020 and it turns out that all of the big promises they made on the campaign trail were just promises because they don't have an actual plan to get them passed, that will deepen people's cynicism and lead to more Republican governance and more people like Trump, more demagogues, more populists. Like Our job in this election, and if a Democrat wins, is to prove then a Democratic president, a Democratic Congress, and Democrats in general can actually bring about the change that they talked about on the campaign trail. To me, like, that's even more important than your policy agenda for the reason that you said. Everyone's policy agenda is, is pretty progressive. There's differences. Some are a little more moderate than others. But generally, they're all moving in the right direction. The difference is, what's your theory for how you're going to get that passed? And that's why like, you know, people talk about how you know, new and ambitious Elizabeth Warren's policy ideas are. I think what makes her even more fit to lead is her embrace of these democratic reforms. And she's been a leader in the field in embracing a lot of these. Her, um, you know, Pete Buttigieg has embraced a lot of them as well. We've heard Jay Inslee, Better O'Rourke... Like some of these people are really embracing these these reforms, and that to me is is a really good sign and i and I think more candidates will like I think a lot of them, Kamala Harris said she was interested in abolishing the electoral college as well, which was great, so I think a lot more of them will be catching on to this
0: What was most interesting about elizabeth Warren's most interesting answer of this entire campaign has been when she was asked what bill. She would do first, right? Because that, theoretically, yeah. you have the most political capital in media after you're inaugurated. The first bill you take up is the one you have the most likelihood to succeed on, right? So there, that is a like prioritization is a really important question. It's one that we've all been asking people in the 2020 interviews we've done. And Elizabeth Warren's answer was not Wall Street reform. It was not her child care policy or Medicare for all. It was her anti-corruption legislation. And her argument was that everything else would be easier. If you could get reduce the influence of special interests in Congress by passing that bill and really smart that like that is a theory of change. Right. That is a very uh, well thought out theory of how you go about about passing your agenda. And I think that is the standard that Democratic voters, whether they're in Iowa or New Hampshire or any of the other states that people are going to come to should push them on that. It's not just what you're going to do. It's how you're going to get it done. Because you could yeah. have the best policy agenda in the world, it can be the exact thing I want, but if you have no concept or no actual theory of how to get it done with an understanding of the moment we're in and who the opposition is – because you got to understand that in this world with this Republican Party – bolstered by a propaganda operation like Fox News funded by billionaires like the Kochs that it is a fucking war to keep the lights on let alone to transform the economy into a green economy or to move right. large portions of the population to medicare like like it is like you have to it is not as simple as going down the hall to talk to Mitch McConnell or having more people over for drinks or playing golf with Kevin McCarthy or someone it is right. like you have to have a theory and voters should push people on that because a someone who can get something done is incredibly important here.
1: Yeah. And um, and look, I think a lot of voters either don't know about these reforms, don't think about them that much. But when you poll them, people have been in favor, majorities have been in favor of doing away with the Electoral College since the late eighties, according to polls, I looked this up, but I saw like only one poll about the filibuster. There was a narrow plurality that wanted to get rid of the filibuster. I'm sure no one or sure most people don't know what the fuck the filibuster is. so I think um the field and all of us would benefit from a lot more polling on these issues, and hopefully that will happen over the course of uh of this race um let's talk a little bit about the media reaction to this, which is as uh dumb as you might imagine um headline in n p r Democratic candidates embrace the risk of radical ideas. Uh, They got, you know, governor of the D.C. Green Room, Ed Rendell, in that piece saying uh, Democrats will lose to Trump if they embrace these reforms. Uh, And here's James Homan of The Washington Post. Quote, it's discordant to watch Dems warn in apocalyptic terms that Trump's disregarding sacred norms and destroying the republic in one breath while calling for court packing, abolishing the Electoral College, ending private insurance and paying out reparations in the next. I don't know why those last two things are, are part of this discussion. I guess that that tells you something right there. Dan, you want to take that one? <laughs> yeah. you want I want to wanna t- t- wanna just, tee off
0: here before the Twitter hordes uh, go after James Holman. He's he's a pretty good he's a good reporter. His Daily Washington Post newsletter is is smart. So yeah, no, just, I love it. So I just I just want to like not uh, tell people like th- like I f- vehemently disagree with this tweet as you will uh, hear in a second, but. He's not the cause of all the problems in American journalism, so I just want to stipulate that. Uh, this idea is so fucking stupid it hurts my brain. The argument is basically is that the Democrats are responding to unconstitutional power grabs from the Republicans by using constitutional processes processes to ensure that more people's voices are heard to that they're right. undertaking a crazy idea to make it so that the person who gets the most votes wins the election. Like what the fuck are we talking about? Like the right. Democrats it, are not proposing stealing any Supreme Court seats. They're proposing passing laws to be signed by presidents, passing constitutional amendments to be ratified by state legislatures. Like and then to even put in the to put in the same bucket um <laughs> Under radical power grabs, uh, taking power away from the insurance industry so that more people could have access to affordable quality health care is bananas. It is just this desire, this like fucking tractor beam of asinine conventional wisdom pulling people into a both sides argument when there are not two sides this argument. There is one side. There is the right side. and It is the fact that the Republicans have disregarded every norm. Every bit of their constitutional duty to protect Trump, to hoard power, to benefit billionaires and Wall Street, et cetera, and all Democrats want to do is fix the problems that this period in American history has have revealed in the U.S. political system.
1: Right, and also every norm that Donald Trump has broken, including possibly some laws, has been about uh, anti-majoritarian, anti-democratic. Um, authoritarian moves, right? Like calling the press, the enemy of the people, um, you know, trying to, uh, oh, selling access and influence to your White House by, you know, letting foreign leaders stay in your hotels and pocketing the money and and Mar- having members at Mar-a-Lago pitch you on policy, right? Like every, every norm he is breaking is about Consolidating power is about less democracy, you know, and so it's like there is a complete and and he's breaking the norms. Like you said, we're just asking to pass some laws, right? Like if we can't pass them, we can't pass them. We're trying, you know, we're trying to ask for some constitutional amendments, which will be also, you know, pretty hard to uh, pretty hard to pass. But we're just asking about them. We're not saying, like, let's elect our president and then have that president declare a national emergency, say, to pass a bunch of legislation. We're not proposing that. It's
0: it's wild. The whole conversation is wild. And just as you're talking about selling access, I think I would just like to note a story that should be the biggest story in America, which is that the woman running the sex trafficking ring in Florida that ensnared Bob Kraft is a -a Mar-a-Lago member selling access to Chinese officials uh, as part of an influence peddling scam through Trump's privately held uh, club. Like,
1: Just completely I mean, under the like radar. That is
0: like textbook scandal, and we're too busy having a national conversation about uh, the George Conway and John McCain and everything else.
1: But Dan, the Democratic response to that is to move more people onto Medicare. Extreme. Radicals. Extreme. Hashtag radicals. So the question is, is there... Is there any political risk here for Democrats, potentially? Um, Trump clearly sent some sort of opportunity when he tweeted the following this week, quote, The Democrats are getting very, in quotation marks, strange. They now want to change the voting age to 16, abolish the Electoral College, and increase significantly the number of Supreme Court justices. Actually, you've got to win at the ballot box. (laughs) I mean, he didn't actually win the majority of the people at the ballot box, but... That's neither here nor there. Um how do we avoid that trap, Dan?
0: I and it's not avoidable. It, like yes, there is political risk. There is political risk in getting out of bed in the morning. And it's the question is how do you manage that <laughs> risk? And I do think it's important that if Democrats are gonna propose these reforms, that they are specific about what they mean. Right? And I think right. people there's been some it's early in the campaign, but you know, a lot of people are like, Yeah, let's open the door to court packing or let's open the door to filibuster reform whatever else and like so let's say what that means like when we had uh Peput on, he he didn't he he didn't outline what his specific proposal on court packing was but he floated an idea that probably makes right. a lot of sense to people by having um, a larger Supreme Court where some members of the members have to be selected on a bipartisan basis. Right, so like, like I think if you're going to do it, you have to be specific about it because that makes it harder for Trump and the Republicans to demagogue it. But ultimately, what he wants to do is scare the public because any election involving an incumbent is a contest between frustration with the status quo and fear of change. And Trump was able to win the election by telling people that their frustration with the status quo exceeded their fear of Trump as president. And now he's going to try to do the reverse with Democrats. But that doesn't – we also – we've talked about this in 2018. We've talked about this to immigration or Medicare for All or whatever it is, is that Trump is going to lie about your position. So just, if you think yeah. you can be for keeping Electoral College and keeping the Supreme Court and Trump and the Republicans are not going to attack you every day for court packing and eliminating Electoral College, then you're insane. Then you have been sleeping through the last uh, many years of Republican politics.
1: So before we move on, we've talked at length about filibuster and court reform on this pod before, but we haven't actually talked much about eliminating the Electoral College. Um, We mentioned that Elizabeth Warren called for this during her town hall this week. It's something Pete Buttigieg has been talking about for quite a while. Uh, He talked about it in his CNN town hall a couple weeks before. Kamala Harris told Jimmy Kimmel she'd be open to the discussion this week. Beto O'Rourke said, quote, there's a lot of wisdom in the idea. Uh, What do you think, Dan? Good idea?
0: The Electoral College is fucking stupid. It is a stupid idea. It is an old idea. It makes absolutely zero sense. The idea that we are – exists in a system where a minority of Americans can elect the president because of what state they happen to live in is it's, it is such an outdated idea. It is – it should be eliminated. And the fears about like the changes it would wrought are also stupid. The it's, It is so common sense that it's – stunning and telling that we actually haven't done this a long time ago
1: so you know the, the big argument well there's a couple arguments a- against doing this right the first argument is this is what the founders intended uh you know the founders in all their brilliance um and so we must not change what the founders intended and look we have already talked about this just on this pod right like the founders also set up a system where um people couldn't you know directly elect the president or the senate and the people who could participate in democracy were, um, white male landowners, right? So like the founders intentions have gone a little bit astray on who participates in our democracy. (laughs) Um, that's number one. So this, the, the other big, uh, argument against this is, okay, well, if that happens, then, uh, presidential candidates will only compete in densely populated areas in the cities, right? Like the, all the election will just take place in, in Los Angeles and New York city and, in Chicago and, and places like that, and no one else will have a voice. What, what do you say to that argument?
0: Well, John, I have some thoughts on this, but you and I have, we've done a lot of traveling during presidential campaigns. Yeah. How many times did you think we went to Ohio, Florida, Colorado, say, in the last, I don't know, month or so of the 08 or 2012 election?
1: All the times,
0: all the time, so fucking often. <laughs> you, you know exactly where what, what hotel you are going to stay in. It like we went all the time. How many times did we go to Idaho? Never been. How many times did we go to Los Angeles in the last month? Uh, just to raise Zero? money. Yeah, but like to, to raise actually money and be on the Tonight
1: Show. Never. You know, no, no, campaigning and seeing voters. You just you you go to uh, you go visit with some rich people. You get their money and then you uh, you do a show. Uh, like like Pod Save America. If you're in yes. LA, everyone, please exactly. come do Pod Save America. <laughs> we want to
0: change electoral college, so more people will be here to do Pod Save America. Um, it's like people are already campaigning in a narrow set of states, and the idea that they would only go to densely populated areas in that and and we people only go to mostly densely populated areas in those states. Now you go to the largest media market. You go to where there are voters. This is not a problem that you're not creating a problem and you're not fixing a problem it is you're simply changing the fact that you think it's a good idea that the majority of americans should be able to pick the president and there are densely populated areas like atlanta jackson mississippi or places like that that candidates never go to that they might go to now because that vote right now a vote a vote in georgia at least before this upcoming election and a vote in Mississippi is worth almost nothing because you already know how the outcome is going to be. But if you could get some number of votes out of those states, you would go to those states. It, it would right. actually I think, make it that people would campaign more places, not fewer places.
1: And frankly, it seems to be the reason that Elizabeth Warren wanted to have that town hall in Mississippi and break that news in Mississippi, because Mississippi is a state with a very high percentage of African-Americans who live in that state. But because the state is so Republican because of the system that we have presidential candidates don't go there because they know it's going to go to the Republican. And if it was about stitching together a national coalition and not a coalition that adds up to 270 electoral votes in different states, uh, presidential candidates might go to Mississippi and campaign there and talk to those voters and give those voters a voice. And this goes for both sides as well. If you're a Republican in California, you um, Do you really think about going to the polls to elect the president a lot like might might you think about it a little more if you knew that your vote counted towards a national popular vote as opposed to thinking, well, California always goes to Democrats. So what does my vote matter? I grew up in Massachusetts and then I lived in D.C., And then I lived in Chicago, and now I live in Los Angeles, right? Like, I have never lived in a place where my vote for president, where I thought that my vote for president would really make much of a difference because I lived in deep blue states all the time. Um, think Think of what would be on everyone's mind about voting, knowing that your vote... ...could add to a national popular vote tally that would then directly elect the president of the United States. Think of the strategies that would change on behalf of the presidential campaigns, where they would go, the different coalitions they would try to assemble, the different states they would try to go to. And also the idea that you could, you, you can't just uh, campaign in the cities. Better O'Rourke campaigned in Texas... Do you think he spent all his time in Austin, Dallas, Houston, and San Antonio? He did not. Do you think Stacey Abrams spent all of her time in Atlanta? She did not. She organized a lot of people in rural areas. Do you think Andrew Gillum spent all his time in the population centers in Florida? He did not, right? Like These these progressive candidates who were running in some of these very red states in 2018, they actually went around those states to try to assemble a coalition beyond just the population centers.
0: I mean, the other, the other way to think about this is just from the perspective of a campaign, how it spends its money, how it spends its time, is right now a Republican candidate has zero incentive to narrow the margin in California. A Democratic candidate has zero incentive to narrow the margin in Texas or right. Louisiana or any other states like that. So now it would make so much sense in a popular vote election for a Republican to campaign and spend money in California, because if you can just narrow that margin by five points, it would be it, that's millions of votes, they're available to you. Right. If you narrow the margin in Texas for a Democrat from nine, even if you lose a state, but you narrow it from, the, I think, the seven or nine that Hillary lost two to three, that's millions of votes into your tally. And so there is actually not really other than clinging to this idea of 13 separate colonies. There is there really is not a legitimate <laughs> argument for the Electoral College just from a pure what is good for the country, how candidates would spend their time, how candidates would spend their money, what would increase voter participation in this country? All of the arguments push towards eliminating the Electoral College.
1: Just, you know, one last stat here. 94% of the 2016 presidential campaign events were in 12 states. 24 states plus the District of Columbia got zero campaign visits in 2016. 24 states. I think we settled this. Let's get rid of that. That's the Electoral College. So the question is, what do we have to do to eliminate the Electoral College? Obviously, um, this is in the Constitution, so there is a constitutional amendment. Constitutional amendments are extraordinarily difficult to pass because you need uh, two-thirds majorities. You need state legislatures to ratify, right? But there is another way to do this. Uh, It is something called the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. This is how it works. Uh, Individual states change their own laws. So that they award their electoral votes to the winner of the national popular vote. And the compact doesn't take effect until states representing 270 electoral votes opt in and pass these laws. Once they do, the winner of the national popular vote would be guaranteed a pool of 270 electoral votes from the states that are part of the compact. This week, Colorado just passed uh, the law to make themselves part of the compact, which brings the total electoral votes right now in the compact to 181. New Mexico, Delaware, Nevada, Maine, and Oregon could all be next. They have Democratic governors who've been on record as supporting this. Um, We won Democratic majorities in some of these states in 2018. Uh, And so if these states pass the compact as well, it brings it to 206 electoral votes, which is just 64 votes short of ending the Electoral College, so this is actually something that could pass uh, without a constitutional amendment. Pretty exciting.
0: Yeah, we, we now we need to get some of those uh, solidly red states to do the same thing. So yeah, I need like some.
1: That, of, the, need some of the big states here. Need some of the big states and some of the and some of the red states. I think those last sixty four votes will be uh, will be pretty difficult. But who knows? Who knows? Can um, I do
0: one? Can I do one addendum to our norms discussion that I think? Uh, sure it just i don't want there to be confusion because in the beginning you know you mentioned the things people are talking about including DC and Puerto Rico becoming states and right. sometimes when we say this uh we it leads to some confusion of what our actual position is on this which is that DC should become a state that should be the first one of the first things that a new democratic president and democratic majority does but Puerto Rico should decide its own future and if it wants to become a state Congress should do that. If it wants to become independent, they should do that. If they want another option, they should do that. Just sometimes we hear from people who think we're using the people of Puerto Rico as a political pawn here, and we're and we're not. We think Puerto Rico should pick its path, and then the then the U.S. government should do that. D.C. has indicated it in wants statehood. It should have statehood. It should
1: become a state. Again, it fits with our larger theme here. More democracy. People get to choose. If people, get to, if people want to choose that they become a state, great. If they don't want to, that's okay too. Just give more people a voice in our democracy. That's what we're saying.
3: I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible.
1: All right, let's talk about the investigation of the president. I don't know if you've noticed, Dan, but Trump has been acting up a bit lately. He's a little unwell. Um, he continued his feud with deceased Senator John McCain, complaining he didn't receive a thank you for giving him the kind of funeral he wanted. <laughs> it just, I, don't, I don't even know what, where to begin on that one. Uh, he lashed out at White House senior advisor Kellyanne Conway's husband, George. And he attacked Robert Mueller himself, saying, quote, I know that he's conflicted, and I know that his best friend is Comey, who's a bad cop. He also complained that even though he had one of the, quote, greatest elections of all time in the history of this country, now Mueller gets to write the report when no one voted for him. Dan, do these seem like the deranged musings of an innocent man? (laughs) They certainly uh, do not seem like the
0: musings of someone who... Is feeling very centered and comfortable in their personal situation. Um, Yeah, it's not great. This is like the, like, I know we never want to ascribe strategy to the things Trump is doing because his strategy is to watch Fox News and then immediately say or tweet the thing that is most, that most like fires the synapses of his very addled brain. Um, But like, we are all talking about the Conways and their marriage and what it means that Trump did this and this feud with John McCain. And my personal opinion on both of those stories, including the John McCain story, is I do not give a shit. We all knew a long time ago that Trump was an asshole. That is part of his brand. He is he has advertised his assholery for years. We don't have to talk about it anymore. It's, it's gross that he attacks uh, McCain. I don't give two shits about the Conways either way. But let's move on and talk <laughs> about the most important thing, which is the fact that the president is involved in multiple criminal enterprises in a massive amount of corruption. And like somewhere in there, there is a message and a strategy. It's just pretty fucking hard to find.
1: <laughs> so, well, it is hard to find because so the House voted last week 420 to nothing on a resolution demanding that Mueller's work be made public upon completion. Lindsey Graham then blocked a similar resolution in the Senate. He actually asked to amend it to include the appointment of a new special counsel to look into Hillary's emails I shit you not. Um, But then Trump has said, quote, and he said this again yesterday, let it come out. Let the people see it. That's up to the attorney general. So what do you think is going on there? Does Trump really want people to see the Mueller report? And when will we see the Mueller report?
0: I don't know whether we'll see it or not. Um, You know, we've had long conversations with Marcy Wheeler and others about how it could become – Uh, public one day, uh, regardless of what Attorney General Barr decides. But Trump also swore up and down that he would be more than happy to testify uh, or be interviewed by Mueller. And he did not do those things. And so there is zero connection between what he says and what he does. And there is no question that all of those Republican House members who voted that way will find a way to twist themselves into some sort of pretzel logic that will allow them to justify that vote and justify uh, defending the Trump Justice Department for not releasing the report.
1: Right. Well, so we get a preview of how Republicans are likely to spin this report from the Associated Press, which ran a story this week that said the following, quote, Trump and his allies are starting to see Mueller's investigation as something potentially very different, a political opportunity. With Robert Mueller's findings expected any day, the president has grown increasingly confident the report will produce what he insisted all along. No clear evidence of a conspiracy between Russia and his 2016 campaign. And Trump and his advisers are considering how to weaponize those possible findings for the 2020 race, according to current and former White House officials and presidential confidence who spoke on condition of anonymity. Dan, is being investigated for multiple felonies and watching some of your closest aides go to jail actually good for Trump? (laughs) Imagine the editorial <laughs> meeting
0: around the table of the Associated Press where they're like, wow, we've written so many stories about why the criminal investigation into the president is bad for the president. What if we wrote a story about how it's good for the president? That is like a it's like a sports radio hot take that burns. It's so stupid. It is not. There's no world in which it's good for the president. It's also shitty journalism because you're just transcribing the spin without any level of scrutiny to that spin. Right. The fact that the president is having a fucking meltdown over the last few days suggests that maybe he's not so confident that this report will be good for him. And the fact that his allies, Republicans in Congress, and his uh, wholly owned propaganda network are out, Shitting all over Mueller in his report suggested maybe they're not so confident this is a good thing because if it, they thought this thing was going to a be a political winner and b be a political winner by declaring his innocence, then they would not be undermining the legitimacy of said report. So it like it's an insane spin, and it's sort of embarrassing to have transcribed that with zero scrutiny.
1: But I will say I expect that the media, the mainstream media, or at least much of the media um has set this bar so high now where if you know robert Mueller doesn't come out and say this man must be impeached or if he doesn't indict don jr or jared kushner or anyone else um then they'll say or if there's not like you know as we've always talked about the uh, the recording of the phone call between uh donald trump and vladimir putin where they say hey let's collude um then somehow, this whole thing is going to be this big disappointment, a problem for Democrats, a win for Donald Trump. And you can imagine all those analysis pieces getting getting written. You can ima- imagine cable news running crazy with this. Um, and you know i don't I don't quite know what Democrats do better except you know bang their heads against the wall and scream. <laughs> but it does seem pretty wild that given the information we already know about the president's uh, criminality uh, His advisors Proven criminality <laughs> And all the other Corruption that's going on In this administration How that can be good for him I don't know
0: It <laughs> I'm like pre angry about this. Like I already know exactly what's going to happen. I already know who's going to say what I know who's going to write what I can read the fucking chirons on TV. I know what my reaction is going to be. I already know what I'm going to tweet. I know what you and I are going to text about. I know what I'm going to yell in that podcast. I have seen the future. I know how this is going and it's going to be really fucking annoying. But but it is let's get this thing out of the way. Let's let's get this fucking report over with. Let's turn it in. Bob Mueller. If you got to send some people to jail, let's send them to jail. If you're not, let's get the report out. Let's go through this ritual process where the press decides that this is a winner for Trump, that Democrats overplayed their hand. Oh, my God, what are Democrats going to do? Like It's over. Like People will start pre-drafting Trump's second inaugural. Let's get that out of the way. <laughs> Let, everyone needs to focus on the fact that Bob Mueller ain't going to solve our fucking problem. The only way Trump is getting out of here is if we, not parts of America, we – the American public do the hard work of winning elections, just like we did in twenty eighteen. We knew Bob Mueller wasn't gonna save the Democrats uh from not getting control of the House. Uh we so we have to know that Bob Mueller is not the solution to our problem. We have to beat Trump at the ballot box. So let's get this behind us and start focusing on that.
1: Dan, there's some good news. By saying this right now, you've ensured that before this podcast comes out, Bob Mueller will come out with a host of indictments. <laughs> and potentially save us all (laughs) um
0: john i have free i knew this was a possibility today because the chatter is quite high in washington that the chatter is quite a report is coming anytime soon my afternoon is free basically after one o'clock today i am ready for emergency pods bonus pods (laughs) live tweeting of things i am i am prepared (laughs) For the rage that will come when this <laughs> report does not, because the only thing the press would accept would be just one page that just says guilty, guilty, right? and then and then Bob in Mueller, any, Bob Mueller like, perp walking Donald
1: Trump out of the else. White House. That's what they were looking for. Yes. perp walk Donald Trump out of yeah. the White House in cuffs with Bob Mueller, and he's got his hands raised high, victory. That's yes. that's what that's what it some be,
0: people think is going to happen. It would, <laughs> it would be like one of those huge busts where they also take Pence down and Nancy Pelosi just moves into the office. <laughs> Anything short, anything short of Nancy Pelosi moving her stuff in the office by five today is a massive loss for Democrats and, and it, Trump the election.
1: And then at the end of the episode, she just puts on her shades and just walks out of walks from walks out of the Capitol Hill, walks down to the White House, takes a seat. That's it. That's the end. Roll the credits. <laughs> she um, she will
0: only govern in those sunglasses.
1: <laughs> all right, it's a good segue to what we really need to do in 2020. There were a pair of somewhat concerning stories about democratic enthusiasm heading into the next election that ran this week. Uh, The first was by Matt Iglesias at Vox, who wrote about what he believes is the demobilization of the resistance since the midterms. Uh, He said that there wasn't a mass mobilization around the emergency declaration from Trump. There wasn't a mass mobilization forcing a Senate vote on the House Democrats anti-corruption, pro-voting rights bill, uh, H.R. 1. Our friend Ezra Levin of Indivisible Uh, responded saying there was plenty of activism around both of those issues, but Ezra did agree that we have got to build political engagement now in advance of 2020, that we can't wait till 2020. Uh, In the other piece, Washington Post reporter Philip Bump noted that in special elections before 2018, Democrats overperformed by an average of nine points, overperformed their usual margin. But in the special elections since the midterms, the ones we've had recently, which I haven't even noticed them all, to tell you the truth. Uh, but there have, been, there have been a bunch. And Republicans have overperformed by one point and have already picked up four seats held by Democrats. Uh, so first overall question, how much should Democrats be worried about complacency heading into 2020?
0: As we say, or as I say, I guess, worry about everything, panic about nothing. Yes, right. we should be worried. I think in both these pieces... They're they're sort of two separate things, but they are related around the enthusiasm question. I think it is unfair to talk about the Vox piece for a sec to expect Democrats to have a same level of civil disobedience response we had to taking health care away from people or banning all Muslims from coming to this country to the moving around the federal dollars for Small portions of a fence that will be built like it's not the same thing. Right. Right. I don't think you can. The emergency declaration has long term process concerns about how our government functions. But the actual result of it is not something that is immediate or real or affecting people. The building of the wall itself is something people should mobilize around. But this is a very small piece of it. And it's a very esoteric sort of dumb argument and everyone knows that everyone's sort of playing a part in a fake game here. Um, so I did like, I don't like I'm very uh, cognizant and receptive to Ezra's response to this, but we do have to assume that Republican enthusiasm is going to be the, through the fucking roof. And we have to remember that Republican enthusiasm in 2010 swept them to one of the largest, at least in terms of seat pickup, uh, elections ever, and then they got their ass kicked in 2012. And so, you know, you have to recognize that 18 can teach us lessons about how to win in 20, but it's not predictable what's going to happen in 20. So we have to be even better, even smarter, even more enthusiastic. The In a larger presidential field, you actually need more enthusiasm – like, you need more people to come out because, they're, like, small increases enthusiasm here and there are minimized by the fact that it's happening in a larger pool of voters. So this is a – it's going to be hard, and we have to be aware of that.
1: Yeah, and look, and the other thing that can um, sort of hurt us or at least sap our enthusiasm about beating Trump is a an extended uh, fight with each other about who we're nominating in 2020. And, I, you know, look, I, I think it is true that most Democrats in the country right now, most Democratic voters, the vast, vast majority of voters um, probably have warm feelings towards all the candidates. Um, they most of them don't know all the candidates. They've heard like Bernie's name and Biden's name. And then probably after those two, Elizabeth Warren. Um, but they don't know a lot of the other candidates that well yet. And, you know, they like them all and they're not really paying close attention yet. But. A lot of Democratic activists and, uh, and writers and journalists and people on Twitter are already paying way too much attention to the race, us included, all the time, reading about 2020. And the sniping, the early sniping among Democrats about the field already is causing me a little concern, I have to say, <laughs> um, over, the, over the last couple of weeks. And, you know, I'm I'm a huge fan, as you know, of saying Twitter is not real life, so it's not causing great concern yet, but I also know that reporters now report off Twitter, and then they have, they, you know, create media narratives, and the media narratives eventually bleed out into the public, and my worry is that when this, my new worry here is that, worry about everything, panic about nothing, uh, is that when this race gets heated up, um, you know, there will be, there will be just a lot of angst in this party, and I will say this it's it's great that it's not coming from the candidates and campaigns themselves right now you know they are they are being good to each other they're being respectful of each other they are acting exactly how they should but um a lot of other people are not and it's uh it's quite annoying
0: it's annoying and we'll have to see whether it's impactful the the length of the democratic party primary does not concern me on its face yeah. obviously the tenor does right if we get into this world where it's either my person or no one then that's going to be a that's going to be that state like we, we need yeah. every voter there is no world like we cannot afford a single democratic someone who voted for someone in democratic primary to then vote for a third party candidate or sit out because they're pissed about the outcome the tenor is what matters right we can yeah. and the and particularly when people are focused on winning you can put these um You can put aside those problems, um, right? You know, or put aside the division. So, I have lots of concerns, uh, (laughs) and I do think we have to be uh, cognizant and aware of the fact that beating an incumbent president is very hard. Yeah, the history of it is not great. It usually requires everything to go your way, and that's even true when the president, the incumbent president, you're trying to beat. Is an incompetent clown who is treating the presidency as some sort of pretrial diversion program to avoid going to jail. Like it is like this is going to be <laughs> challenging. We are going to have to do everything right. We are all going to have to get on board. And people have to. The question for me is are as this primary plays itself out and everyone's getting involved and and you know, picking the candidate they support and donating that candidate or making or texting for that candidate or making calls for that candidate. What are we doing? We writ large, large progressive universe to do two things. One, what are we doing to build up the infrastructure of the Democratic Party and the larger progressive world to help that nominee once we have that nominee? And second, what are we doing to prevent Trump from strengthening while we have this fight? And those are the questions I think a lot we will spend time talking about, the DNC will spend time talking about, Democrats in Congress, and others will spend time talking about, which is as his primary plays itself out, we can't put all the other work of beating Trump on hold.
1: Right, and I think yeah. So what do we do about all this? I think we have to remember to focus on Donald Trump on what he's doing because that's you know that unifies us. That unified us during 2018, right? We can't completely ignore Trump here. Um, I also think we have to focus on down ballot races, right? Like we have to focus on the Senate. That's going to be it's going to be huge. <laughs> Uh, to, to, to try to take the Senate back. That's going to be a, a big, big goal in 2018. I think, by the way, we also have to focus on keeping the House. Um, you know, I was talking to some of the newly elected uh, members of the House, and, you know, we're facing sort of the end of the, and we're going to talk about fundraising in a second, but we're facing the end of the fundraising quarter uh, at the end of March. And the NRCC, which is the Republican uh, committee that deals with um, House elections, are already set to target a bunch of the most vulnerable Democrats who just won in 2018. And those Democrats need to raise money. And it was easier for them to raise money in 2018 because the focus was on the House. And it is harder to do so now in 2020 with everyone focused on the presidential election. So I would tell everyone, you know, if you go to the Cook Political Report, they have 16 House seats held by Democrats that they have in toss-up, that they will be toss-up seats in uh, in 2020. And I would think about giving some of those candidates um, some money. Especially, you know, in advance of the end of the March deadline, because that's when the Republicans will think, okay, who's got a lot of money on the Democratic side, who doesn't, and the people who don't, maybe we'll target them and we'll run really good candidates and spend a lot of money in that district. And you know, it is not going to be easy keeping the House. It is not going to be easy winning the Senate back and we need to make sure and and that's to say nothing of the state legislatures and governors mansions that we could flip in 2020 as well or the ones that we need to hold on to. So I think it's really important for everyone to focus on the party as a whole and making sure we build a progressive majority in 2020 and that goes beyond the presidency.
0: Yes, all those things play together, right? The if you're if these democrats in these toss-up seats, many of which are in, you know, the quote-unquote swing states, Um, if they have money to run good campaigns, that's going to benefit the presidential election. Right. Right. If uh, whoever our Democratic nominee is to – or let's take whoever the Democratic nominee is in Arizona or Iowa or North Carolina, if they have money to run real races and and really organize that state starting now, then that will benefit the presidential. If the presidential candidate – is strong and well funded that will benefit down ballot because there is like we have to be aware of how hard it is going to be to hold on to some of these house seats and how much work it's going to take. What was the popular vote margin in 18? Was it 7 points? I think so, yeah. So, it is extremely unlikely that absent a collapse in the in Trump's numbers or some uh exogenous event that were to happen that a democrat is going to win the popular vote by 7 points. Right. So you're going to be this is a tougher playing field already. So it's going to take even more work, even more uh, organizing, even more focus and smart strategy to hold on to some of these seats and ensure that if we have a Democratic president, we have a Democratic Senate and house to actually do the things we care about.
1: Um, All right. Let's talk about fundraising in the presidential and how much it really matters. The Wall Street Journal reported this week that former Vice President Joe Biden has told at least a half dozen supporters that he will be running for president and has asked for their help to kickstart his fundraising. Uh, According to the journal, Biden could have an exploratory committee set up by sometime after Easter, which is April 21st. But he's also reportedly concerned about making a big fundraising statement um, right out of the gate. And he told supporters he's worried he won't be able to report the same kind of online donor numbers that people like Bernie Sanders and Better O'Rourke did as they kicked off their campaigns. So just to step back for a minute, like, is Biden right to be worried about raising money online? Why is online money treated as more valuable than traditional fundraising these days? Like a lot of people hear these numbers and I think there's not a lot of context for what it means, how much it matters. Why should we give a shit about this?
0: It's a pretty stunning statement about how fundraising in campaigns has radically changed in the last few cycles. Mm -hmm. Because here you have the two-term vice president of the United States, been in Democratic politics for decades. Who I'm sure has met every Democratic fundraiser, has one of the the largest Rolodexes in the history of Democratic politics. And he is worried about fundraising because he does, he cannot raise money. He does, he's worried he cannot raise money from people who are giving five, 10, 27, $48, whatever the average for your chosen candidate is. And Now we're in a world where having a large fundraising email list is seen as more valuable and more important than having a large Rolodex of rich people. And that's I think that's great progress for the country. Biden is right to be worried in the sense that it takes – you have to have the list. You have to have been working on this for a long time. You have to have built up a donor base. And he just has not run a campaign uh, that's had the ability to do that in – ever right? Like yeah. in the, he did not have that success in 2008. And then he was on the ticket in 2012. And so he it wasn't his list and he was didn't run in 16. And as far as I know, his team has not spent the same amount of time and energy and money that Kamala Harris's team in particular spent in the last few years using digital ads to and using other strategies to build up their list. And so you're sort of starting from scratch. And so it's going to be very hard to come anywhere close to what some of these other candidates have done, let alone what uh, Beto or Bernie did.
1: And how much does money matter? Obviously, we know it matters in the sense that like, you need money to hire staff and run ads and do all the things you do in a campaign. But what, if anything, does the amount you raise, and I guess more specifically, how many people you've raised it from, tell us about a candidate's chances or a candidate's political strength? Does it tell us anything?
0: Well, President Jeb Bush would tell you that whoever has the most money
1: wins. <laughs> Please clap. <laughs> yes.
0: I think there's two separate things here, right? Which is, if you can raise lots of money from lots of different people, it is a measurement of enthusiasm for your candidacy, right? That people are excited enough about you. The large enough people are excited enough about you that they are going to uh, give you money. And that that is important. Now... I think the lesson of the 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 joking Jeb Bush reference is the you don't have the person with the most money doesn't necessarily win, and there's lots of changes in how politics are conducted with the invention of the internet, social media, the new media landscape that allow it that it there are more that you can you you can be smarter and succeed with less money, but I do think you need to hit a threshold to be able to run credible campaigns in the early primary states. Primarily Iowa, and so in that sense, I think there will be some sort of cutoff. I have no doubt that Biden can raise, cross that threshold through whatever means he gets there. But you have to hit a threshold to be able to run a real campaign, and below that, then you're just sort of wasting your time and everyone else's.
1: Yeah, I mean, but, you know, the the leaders on how many uh, donors they have uh, right now are Bernie, and then Beto, and then Kamala, and it does show, and you know, they have, you know, they can show that they have these small dollar donors in all 50 states right and that means that their at least their initial support is um has breadth to it right like we don't know how much depth it has but it has breadth there's like a lot of different people that are contributing to their campaigns and so i think it's like one early measure for those candidates to say look we have we have pretty widespread support outside our donor lists outside our home states but you're right that beyond that like especially as we get into it's like one of those early indicators and as we get deeper into the race it matters less One way, though, it does matter a lot this time that it hasn't mattered in the past. The DNC is offering debate invitations to candidates who have at least 65,000 donors, so long as they also have a minimum of 200 donors in each of at least 20 states. Uh, So you can get into the debate by hitting that threshold of donors or earning at least 1% in a series of public polls. And so for candidates who aren't polling well or who, who aren't ju- and aren't polling well just because no one knows who they are because they're just like brand new names to people building this donor base is a way to get on stage at the debate and that's why you know Pete Buttigieg recently surpassed the 65,000 donor th- uh, threshold Andrew Yang has surpassed the 65,000 donor threshold um, he's a uh, venture capitalist who believes in universal basic income I don't think we've talked about him much on the pod yet but he's he's going to be on the debate stage and Fucking sen- former Senator Mike Gravel uh, is floating a a presidential bid, and for those who don't know who Mike Gravel is, um, what year was it that he was on the debate stage, Dan? Two thousand and eight. Two thousand and eight. Mike Gravel is on the debate stage, and let me tell you, he is uh, he's a character, to say the least. So, like, I don't know. There was there was some interesting Politico piece the other day, like. Is, was this the smart move of the Democratic National Committee to make it based on donors because could just very random people sort of game the system to get 65,000 donors and suddenly you have all kinds of folks on the debate stage?
0: I mean, sure, yes. people. You have to be able to put together a real campaign to get 65,000 donors right. and spread out over 20 states. That's a fucking hard thing to do. Yeah, And you have to draw a line somewhere. And I think the ability to build a grassroots fundraising base is a better measure of deciding whether people should get on the stage than a series of poorly conducted media polls where people have very limited name ID. Cause right. that's a self-fulfilling prophecy, which is if you don't, you, you, you aren't known. So you can't get on the debate stage. So you can't get known. So you can't get on the debate stage It's sort of, you know, not an ideal way to do it. So having both measures, you know, either, or I think makes sense. And yeah, we might end up with, uh, you know, it might've seemed absurd, you know, two months ago, for you to say, well, the South the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, who's thirty-seven years old, is gonna be on the debate stage. But now that everyone's gotten a chance to hear Pete Buttigieg and see him and he's been able to build this fundraising base, I think everyone's excited he'll be on the debate stage. Right. And so I like I, I don't I think it's a fine measure. Is it a perfect measure? No. There's no perfect measure here. It's, you're gonna anger some people, you're gonna ask people who you wish were on stage, you aren't, who you wish weren't on stage, you are, and that's just sort of how it is. But it's better than just simply using polls, which I think is not uh, a great
1: way to do it. Right. Uh, last question before we go, since this is in the news this morning. Uh, what do you think about the various reports that Biden is considering the selection of an early running mate like Stacey Abrams? I am...
0: I am as pro Stacey Abrams as you can get. I want more Stacey Abrams in my politics. I want more Stacey Abrams in my life. She is one of my most favorite politicians that I have had a chance to meet in in my life. I think she is amazing. Um, I I have to say, and I say this as someone who has a longstanding level of of affection for Joe Biden as a Delaware native. And obviously we worked very closely with him for a long time. I'm deeply uncomfortable with the way this conversation is happening. That from someone who has as much claim to run for president as yes. anyone who's running for president yes. uh, is being slotted into a vice presidential slot before she even makes a decision. And I think that's unfair to her. And it's just, and it's, it's an unfortunate way for the conversation to take place. And it's diminishing of someone who should not be diminished in any way.
1: Stacey Abrams is a star. She is brilliant. She is, I, I agree with you. She's one of my favorite people in Democratic politics. And if I were her, I would be like, okay, I'm either going to run for president or I'm going to run for Senate. And if she runs for president, she will be an incredible addition to the field. And if she runs for Senate, that's great too. It should be up to Stacey Abrams. But the idea that through like reports about advisors that like they're thinking of like slotting her in at a ticket. I don't know if if I were her, I wouldn't I wouldn't want that, <laughs> right? Like I'd be like, I'm a star. I am like I got more votes than uh, any Democrat in Georgia's history. <laughs> I should uh, I should run for Senate here, or I should run for president myself, <laughs> which she could. So I think it's a little silly, and I don't think it's great for Biden either. By the way, I think that no. if you're going to run for president, you need to go out there and say, "I'm running for president on my own. Vote for me. Don't vote for me because you like." That there's a package deal here like it doesn't seem it doesn't i don't know it just doesn't seem like it seems more of like a gimmick than a well thought out move
0: yeah i think that's exactly right like the the american public's uh bullshit detector is quite high and it it'll just it'll seem gimmicky it's basically like putting a flashing uh sign over your head that says weak and it's just like this—the similar idea also floated in these stories that Biden would commit to running for only one term, yeah. um, which is being talked about as a way to deal with the, with his age. But if I remember—I remember seeing polling in 2008 because people were floating this idea about McCain, uh, who was also an older presidential candidate, and it was a—it pulled terribly. People, I think they don't want to go through election twice. It's just—it if you were too old to do or. For whatever reasons, unable to do two terms, why would I pick you to do one term? Uh, now maybe it's a different world than it was, you know, a decade ago. But it seems alarming. I think the biggest threat to Biden's candidacy right now is not the lack of uh, an uh, an email list. It's not the la- it's not uh, age. It's not his older positions. It's the verbal diarrhea of his advisors who are having these conversations in the pages of the New York Times instead of within a conference room at his headquarters somewhere. And so <laughs> right. he is. Like like put all the ideas on the whiteboard. Just don't show the whiteboard to Jonathan Martin at the New York Times. It it I think it it's really diminishing to Biden. It hurts his chances and it makes whenever he if he were to decide to it makes his announcement less of a clean shot by having this this big national discussion about. How weak his advisors think he is and what absurd measures they can take to address that weakness.
1: Yeah. For all we know, Joe Biden has already decided against either of these moves and is just going to announce his run for president on his own. Um, but now, because people couldn't keep their mouths shut, um, this is out there all over the news today. So that's, uh, you know, it's a good lesson on keeping a running a tight ship in a campaign. So there aren't a lot of leaks um that's you know we tried very hard to do that in 2008 and so uh, i think it's a it's a wise move okay when we come back we will have john lovett's interview with congresswoman lauren underwood
3: i'm roman mars host of 99 invisible
5: She is the Democratic representative from Illinois' 14th Congressional District, a health policy expert, and the youngest African-American woman ever elected to Congress. Congresswoman Lauren Underwood, welcome to Pod Save America.
4: Thank you. So glad to be here. So
5: good to have you. So this is the first time we've gotten a chance to speak with you since you won last year. You started your work in Congress. What's been the biggest surprise so far about the job?
4: Well, I think the biggest surprise is honestly the pace of the work. You know, there's such a reputation of, you know, gridlock and dysfunction. And I feel like we are just moving at a clip, okay. <laughs> getting things done. And uh, the way that we have to sort of divide our attention, I'm on three committees. I do education and labor. And on that committee, we actually do health care stuff too, uh, veterans affairs and homeland security. And then, you know, there might be a bill on the floor about Yemen, or there might be a bill on the floor about, you know, HR1 and anti-corruption or whatever. And so we're just keeping all these different balls in the air and just getting it done. I Imagine
5: it. how busy it would be if there wasn't gridlock.
4: Right. I mean, the Senate is completely dysfunctional. Yeah. And, you know, I think our Constitution did not contemplate having a chamber that did not want to be separate and co-equal. Right. Yeah. And it's part of the legislature. And uh, and so we need to make some changes over there. And that's why elections are so important. <laughs> and each vote counts. Um, but for now, I'm excited about the progress we're making in the House.
5: So you're the youngest African-American woman ever elected to Congress. What's an issue where you feel like being a young African-American woman in this space that is, you know, I I was looking before before you came in. The average age of a member of Congress is now around 60, which is the oldest or close to the oldest it's ever been. What is something that you find you're bringing that that some of the members are learning from you just by your presence?
4: Well, I'll say that. I certainly approach problems differently. Um, and during orientation, we had a training for the first time. They had us do a sexual harassment and assault training for members. And I sat in that training. It was inadequate. And I was just like, God, it needs to be better. And so started looking at what policies were in place and realized, yikes, this place was set up to support these bad actors and enable them uh, to, you know, have sexual misconduct in the workplace. And so I was not sworn in yet and submitted some uh, amendments to the rules package that we would vote on on the first day. They were accepted by the rules committee and they passed on our first day in office saying wow. that uh, members could not use non-disclosure agreements to prevent witnesses or victims from coming forward with information um, and saying that members of Congress couldn't have sexual relationships with committee staffers. And, you know, that kind of thing had been longstanding accepted practice in this workplace but would never fly in any other workplace around the country. And, um, and so I think that it takes a millennial woman, millennial woman of color to come in and say, "Mm, not okay, and find a creative way to get it done.
5: Have you found that there are some of your older colleagues that kind of feel a bit flummoxed by this, this sort of, there is a phalanx of young people who have come in, and they don't seem to really care about the way it used to used to be done. Do Do you find that they're surprised, caught off guard, some of the sort of like old guard members of both parties.
4: 100%. I think that some people uh, feel a little threatened. They've learned how to thrive in the dysfunction. And so now we're finally back in the majority. Folks have their gavels or they have their little fiefdom. And here comes this new crew of freshmen who are now a quarter of the caucus. Yeah. The new members are a quarter of the Congress and nothing can pass if we're not on board. And that just immediately is disruptive. Um, and so I think that some people were uh, surprised. Um, and I've sort of felt that maybe kept us at a distance. Uh, but it's up to me to build relationships and build bridges and to get to know people for individuals because i'm not a threat to my colleague what we are though is going to say that you know we put people first and we're here to serve and it doesn't matter if you're a democrat or a republican right because there's corruption across the board sometimes um and not afraid to call it out uh, not afraid to stand up and say no and not afraid to lead by example
5: have you had to show any older members how to use their phones
4: <laughs> no, but I've done a few selfies uh and selfies on the floor and you would be surprised the number of people who are interested in that. You're not supposed to take pictures on the floor, obviously, of the House. Um, but you know, this is what we do.
5: Uh so you're from a district that Donald Trump won in twenty sixteen. Yeah. Um and the swing on the congressional uh vote was tremendous, right? Yeah. The 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 person you defeated by around I think five points That's right. had won his previous race by twenty points. That's right. Something like that. Uh There have been these pieces coming out of Washington, coming out of the coverage of the presidential cycle, covering some of the debates about the Green New Deal, about about Medicare for all and about this question around uh, Democrats moving to the left. Now, you were asked this about there was a story about this uh, in Politico that asked a bunch of members from districts that were flipped from Trump winning to to a Democrat taking the seat about uh, whether or not that is hurting you in your district. You basically said that's not the questions you're getting but do you feel like this conversation is one that matters inside of your district? Are people talking about socialism? Are people talking about the Green New Deal? Do you get some questions or skepticism from voters when you're when you're back home?
4: I get questions about climate change. I get questions about healthcare affordability. What are we going to do to lower the price of insulin? Uh, we get questions about a you know, affording higher education and making college, you know, reasonably priced so that people aren't having hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. I don't get questions necessarily about like hashtag Green New Deal or, you know, um, what, what kind of label are you, right? Like, I'm a Democrat. People know I'm a Democrat. Yeah. And, and so um, it's not framed in that way. And so what I encourage my colleagues to do is to be prepared to have conversations um, that regular middle-class families understand, and it's grounded in reality in their lives, right? There's a lot of aspirational goals, and that's great. And I think bold ideas are wonderful. Um, but I think that we have a tremendous responsibility Responsibility to the people that elected us to make sure that we engage in a two-way conversation. And if we're up having a conversation and debating around these aspirational goals that may not happen for another 25 or 50 years, right, that long-range planning is important. It really is. Um, But the people in my community are like literally struggling with $2,500 a month for their kids' insulin. And that's a problem in their day-to-day life, literally struggling um, because they can't have sick leave to take care of their son because their job doesn't offer it, right? These concrete issues that may not be the bold uh, ideas that uh, make headlines, uh, but certainly make a real impact in people's lives.
5: Well, it seems like there's this divide, right? There are those who are saying, well, sure, we need to address those issues right now, but we need to set a goal for where we're, A, aiming towards in the long run, and B, to pull the debate in the left, right? That if we are talking about only preserving the Affordable Care Act and Republicans are talking about repealing the Affordable Care Act, we're not talking about where we want to get to. Sure. So uh, Congresswoman uh, Pramila Jayapal has introduced a Medicare for All bill. You have not yet signed on to it. You've talked more about stabilizing the Affordable Care Act. How do you feel about this debate over uh, Medicare for All? And, and do you believe that's the goal we should be aiming towards?
4: So I believe healthcare is a human right. And that's been foundational to my nursing practice. I'm a nurse, been a nurse for 10 plus years. And uh, I think that absolutely in 2019, we should not have tens of millions of people in this country that don't have access to healthcare, don't have health insurance. And so um, yes, heard about Medicare for all. When I talk to people in my community and I say, well, what do you mean by that? I usually get a variety of answers. People say Medicare 55 and up, Medicare 40 and up, 18 and up, Medicare birth. Those are all very different things. And some mm-hmm. people want to buy in. Well, well, um, I know just based on our healthcare system, right? Each of those have different timelines for implementation. It would transform our healthcare system or not, and I think that the the details matter when it comes to healthcare, right? We saw uh, with the Affordable Care Act that um, uh, people might have supported the broad idea, but the way that it was implemented created winners and losers. And we want, as we think about transforming our healthcare system moving forward, to make sure that we design it in a way where folks come out ahead. Um, and one of the concerns that I have from my district is just uh, we're not sure how much it costs and how we would pay for it. And so until I get that information, I'm not co-signing the bill. But I do think it's a great goal. And I think that a lot of people are really energized and excited about the idea of expanding health care coverage. And that's where we need to be moving as a country.
5: So you are someone that has this nursing experience, uh, this policymaking experience at the local level and also at the national level. You have a kind of there are a few people that could say that they've been a nurse, they've worked on a, a, a Medicaid plan at the local level, that they've been in the Obama administration as healthcare, uh, Obamacare was being implemented. It sounds to me that you are more concerned about the transition yeah. than a lot of people are right now.
4: I mean, you got to remember, a year ago, two years ago, our healthcare was under attack. So those of us that were on Obamacare, and I'm one of them, I have a pre existing condition. For people like us, um, we did not have certainty that our plans would even be offered through the end of 2017. We'd not have certainty that if we were trying to plan a procedure that we would even have coverage. And so um, I think there's a lot of people, millions of people in this country who felt threatened and and not having a stable environment for their health care is one that creates a lot of uncertainty. And they were looking to their elected officials to say, who's going to have our back for this basic need? healthcare. And so I think that the Medicare for All debate has been framed as an either-or. ACA or Medicare for All. And I think that that is fundamentally flawed. We should be able to do both. We should be able to fix the healthcare system that we have right now and ensure that people like me and millions of other Americans, right, over hundreds of millions of Americans have pre-existing conditions. And we need to make sure that they have their coverage. Make sure. While we have this very important policy debate, Um, that has now gotten to kitchen tables, right? Like all across the country, people are talking about, you know, what should our healthcare system look like? And that's great. But we haven't settled on that final plan, that final policy, that conclusion. We are in this idea generating phase right now. And so let's let the process play out. But I think that we can fix our system.
5: But letting that process play out, like, do you have a position on, do you believe in the end, most people should end up with a Medicare-like plan? Or do you think that private insurance has a valuable role to play for people that currently have it and like their private insurance?
4: I think that we should be creating an opportunity to cover more people. Okay. And right now we have tens of millions of people who don't have health care coverage, many of whom live in states where they chose not to expand Medicaid. And so we can look at expansion opportunities in a way that is fully consistent with ex, you know existing laws, but offers people a pathway to coverage. I don't think that we should... Um, necessarily say that, you know, your private policy that you enjoy and it works for your family is wrong, it's flawed, it should go away tomorrow, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And some some ideas say that and I don't support those policies, but I do think um, that, you know, we need to have an upfront conversation in this country about the amount of money we spend on healthcare throughout the lifespan, how we pay for it, and what is what kind of quality care are we getting in return? Um, a lot, you know, we have all sorts of people who are going to the hospital, coming out with infections, leaving the system in worse shape than they entered, and uh, certainly for the amount of money we spend, we should be able to provide higher quality care.
5: So about oversight. You had a moment with uh, the uh, secretary of Homeland Security talking about family separations, about the impact it has on the children, the kind of effect it has on these families. It was a big moment. Uh, There's this question now about the kind of oversight Democrats are doing, questions around impeachment. Are you worried about Democratic overreach, whatever that means, or do you think that's a silly Washington thing?
4: You know, we came from an environment with the tr- with uh, the Republican-controlled Congress that didn't want to do any oversight. They didn't want to ask any questions, any kind of critical questions of what the Trump administration was doing. And so, you know, I'm on three committees where we have, I think, robust oversight agendas. And that's part of the Article One responsibility of the Congress. And we had a Congress uh, in the 115th that just... Ignore that responsibility. So I don't think it's overreach. I think that these are really important questions. We had Kirsten Nielsen come in and I asked her about the family separation policy and she was not prepared she was to not provide prepared. candid answers. And that's unacceptable, right? And, and I think that we are making a good faith effort to do oversight in an orderly way. Let's bring the secretary in and ask her to be upfront and honest before we go and, and have subpoenas or before we go and make this a really difficult working environment for all involved, right? We should be able to just, as colleagues share information, and it's it's not a, it should not be a surprise. I worked in the executive branch for many years during the Affordable Care Act, and the Congress cared how we were implementing that program. Were we doing it in accordance with legislative intent, and how was it going to change our healthcare system? I also worked on the Flint water crisis, and those lawmakers from Michigan and around the country would bring us in in the Obama administration and say, what are you doing, and how are you helping these people? And that kind of oversight posture is critically important important to a well-functioning democracy. And so I believe that what we are doing as House Democrats in the Congress is one that... is important for the long-term health and vitality of our democracy and it's doing it in a way that allows for bipartisan action and I'm really encouraged that you know maybe not during the hearings when the cameras are on but maybe the closed-door briefings my Republican colleagues have a lot of questions about the topics that they hadn't wanted to raise on their own right so on Homeland Security we've had uh, private briefings on election security what happened in 2016 with the hacking, you know, what's gone on in 2018 and how were we able to ensure that our elections were able to go on without interference? Right. Publicly, you don't see Republicans wanting to ask any questions about that. But privately, they have follow up questions and it's they a, want information. Right. Amazing so, how courageous
5: some of these people are privately. Well,
4: you know what? I'm not here to ask for sympathy for our Republican colleagues, but what I will say <laughs> is right. But what I will say is there is a responsibility um, to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States, and I believe that there are true patriots and lawmakers who are willing to uphold that oath from both political parties, and that's encouraging.
5: So, I think we've so we've seen a little bit of that right. There was this 400 to zero vote that the Mueller report should be public. People took 420. 420. So yeah. yeah. 420 to to, to zero. Uh, though a few uh, a few presents, yeah. a couple of people voted. I'm here. I am mean, around. Whatever. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, we've seen a breakdown uh, in the House Intelligence Committee between Democrats and Republicans. Sure. Congressman Nadler has faced uh, criticism from his Republican colleagues for the sweeping requests that he made, mm-hmm. uh, which you know I personally think are justified. Speaker Pelosi has talked about the need for a bipartisan basis if we ever or you know yeah. bipartisan buy-in if we ever move toward impeachment, and yet if we decide that the standard is not some objective nonpartisan standard, but one in which both Democrats and Republicans agree that something went wrong, aren't we giving a veto? Aren't we saying that, uh, if Republicans don't, if there's no standard by which Republicans will decide that Donald Trump did something impeachable, there's no standard by which Donald Trump did something truly terrible that demands being called out because they're worried about calling him out because of their base, because of Fox news, because of all the pressures they're under, uh, are we, are we creating a standard in which Democrats are held, by, held to a set of norms and values and, and principles, but Republicans aren't because Republicans aren't willing to call out their own as much?
4: Well, OK, I have a lot of thoughts. One, haters are going to hate. And the Republicans... Right. We know that they are going to protect their own. They are going to always criticize what we do in terms of oversight action. And they want to talk about something else. It makes them uncomfortable. It's not flattering to their base, to their colleagues. And they want to deflect. That does not mean that we change the subject. It means that we continue forward with our uh, priorities, which are to protect and defend the Constitution really basic. Now, in terms of the the standards that Democrats are held to, I think that we all are held to the same standard because we all are up for election in 2020. Right. And so it's up to the American people and how they how they judge our performance. Um, And impeachment is one issue. It's not the only issue. And in communities like mine, it's not the main issue. It's really not. And so when I heard the speaker's comments about uh, impeachment needing to be bipartisan, I saw that as a tactical assessment. Right. If if we are going to if we receive information that suggests that there are, you know, such high crimes where impeachment is warranted, we literally will need Republican votes in order for it to move forward. That's not um, some kind of, you know, theoretical um, let's all skip and hold hands and walk down the Yellow Brick Road together. That is like literally. That's how you move something through the Senate. You through need, the Senate. Yeah, you need you need bipartisan support, and we saw that the House came out ahead of the Senate on the emergency declaration. And uh, the joint resolution, we were able to get some bipartisan support in the House. We saw there was bipartisan support in the Senate. And we'll see next week when we go back with this veto override how many people are willing to be courageous. But the key is there's going to need to be bipartisan action. doesn't mean that the standards are different. It's just tactically where we are.
5: Well, it would, that would suggest then that even if there is a majority in the House made up of Democrats who believe Donald Trump has committed impeachable offenses, mm-hmm. she might not pursue it if she didn't believe there was bipartisan support for it in the Senate, even though we have the power to impeach him without those Republican votes?
4: You'd have to ask her.
5: Okay. Okay. Fine. Sorry. We'll ask her.
4: Yeah, you Fine. should. I, I think she'd love to come I on. mean,
5: I was hoping you would you know, spitball with me, but.
4: Well, okay. What do, what do I think might happen? Yeah. I think that whatever information moves forward, it will be done in the most transparent way because what we were talking about is so critical to the future of our democracy that it will not be provided in some closed-door classified briefing just to the members of Congress. This is going to be a national conversation, and all policymakers are going to feel pressured to act. Okay. And so that's encouraging, right? We talk about transparency and sunshine Mm -hmm. rules, and we talk about how, you know, we want to lead in a way that is inclusive and reflects the values of our communities. And this is the test.
5: Okay. You have a very good member of Congress sustained eye contact with me. Oh, good. It's making me it's very intense.
4: Uh-huh. It, very, what? I feel as though I'm the
5: no. only person in the room.
4: Good. It's just a private conversation that we're having here.
5: So you're roommates with Congresswoman Katie Hill.
4: Katie is my girl.
5: She is a friend of this show. Uh-huh. uh She was one of the Crooked Eight. Oh, really? Uh, who really? Uh, one of the people we campaigned for and sort of led an effort out here in California because we were going to flip those seats. On election night, we weren't sure if we were going to get them all. We ended up getting them all. Uh, does she leave towels on the floor? What is the most annoying thing that she does as a roommate? Are, are there old boxes in the fridge that should be <laughs> thrown away, but she won't do it?
4: Okay. So Katie is the best. All right. First of all. Um, <laughs> we have... Okay, this is such an odd thing. I'm 32, Katie's 31. We are regular people that were living our normal lives, cared about our country, and decided to step up and run during this chaos and confusion. I hope that that this
5: buildup is leading to a pretty good day. I'm going to tell you the truth. Okay.
4: And, And it is so, this is an odd thing, being a member of Congress. It's weird, it's fun, it's challenging, and I get to go through it every day with a real friend in Katie Hill and so you know we have lots of amazon deliveries um that come and 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 her family sends all kinds of fun stuff and it's like an unboxing you know like the bloggers do the unboxing it's like that sometimes it's pretty fun um she goes on tv shows you know like the the news shows and stuff and so sometimes it's really early sometimes it's really late so sometimes we miss each other but i'm always excited when we're both home and we can catch up um i would hope that Everyone can have a friend and support person like I found in Katie Hill, and I'm grateful to be able to serve with her in the Congress.
5: That is such a moving answer. Does she leave we don't in the sink? We don't share a bathroom. We don't share bathroom. You're, you're dodging Mm-mm. the co- Congresswoman. Listen, there's no dirt. This is the kind of politics that people are sick of. Are all right? they? They're sick of this. You're dodging the question, all right? Does she not throw away her chopsticks if you have sushi, if she left little uh, things of soy sauce when you order takeout? Uh-huh. I need some dirt.
4: Okay, some dirt. Um, We don't eat that much in the apartment. Okay. Um, And she listens to her podcasts on speaker.
5: That's brutal.
4: And so I am always very well informed of what's going on um, because I hear her news of the day.
5: All right. I guess we can count that. That is a frustrating thing for a roommate to do.
4: It's not frustrating. It's just you know, <laughs> I I am hearing from news outlets that I would not have otherwise picked myself.
5: Ah, uh, turned now you just turned it into a compliment. Unbelievable. What a, I understand how you won this Trump-friendly district. with well, you know, with what? this kind of this kind of smooth operation.
4: No, that is not how we won. We showed up in people's <laughs> living rooms, in their soybean fields, in their cul-de-sacs, and we talked. And you know what? I invite everybody to come. The 14th District of Illinois is a beautiful place. It's half suburban. It's half rural. We have these wonderful women. I call them Pat and Barb and Sue and Marge because mm-hmm. they are the real ladies of the 14th, And they will sit, I'm telling you, They will sit and have a wonderful conversation with you. They will tell you all about their families and their concerns and what we need to do about climate change and how we can lower drug prices. And then they will offer you some cookies and some tea. And then they will ask you all about your life. And you'll be like, but I have these talking points. They'll be like, no, tell me about your life in California. What are you doing? How's your family? And uh, you won't want to leave.
5: And she uses coasters whenever she's using the coffee table.
4: Absolutely. And you need to take your shoes off and coming into her living room. Okay. Mm-hmm.
5: Okay. Congresswoman Lauren Underwood, thank you so much for being here.
4: Oh well, thank you. This is so fun. This is fun. Um, and you know what? I I hope that everybody takes some pride in the work that we're doing in the Congress. We work for you, the American people. And so be in touch with us, right? Like I love seeing the comments online, on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. I love uh, people stopping at the airport or on the train or whatever. And that kind of dialogue is important. For so long, we millennials have not had elected representatives in the Congress. And for the first time in the Democratic side, we have a whole little caucus. And and, you know, let's make sure that we are doing the work that, you know, will improve all of our lives.
5: Uh, Do you think that titling this episode, Congressman Underwood slams roommate Katie Hill, will get people to hear it?
4: You know what? Let's talk about that clickbait culture. (laughs) And let's talk about these reporters that are so pressed to sow division between me and my other congressional colleagues. I'm sick of it. Particularly the women of color in the caucus. That they will slap my picture on an article that I am not quoted in, that is not relevant, and they'll be like, you know, centrist Democrats are worried about socialism in the Democratic Party, and I'm just like, that have nothing to do with me. Take my picture off of it. Um, and I feel so, as though maybe I you know, played into
5: this in some way by well, trying to know, divide you and Katie.
4: I would just encourage everyone to reflect on the importance of having a, a big tent party and the opportunity for voices to speak authentically. And perhaps if folks are, you know, a little bit uncomfortable with, you know, the thoughts being expressed, maybe let's just focus on those sentiments and not who is speaking, right? Because for the first time, the superstars coming out of the Democratic Party are young women of color. Isn't that incredible? It's exciting. It's exciting. And, you know, that's disruptive in its own and people get, you know, they start to feel some kind of way, but we're here and we're leading and we're making change and we're serving the people. And I'm really excited.
5: Let's just leave it there. Okay. What are we supposed to do? I can't say anything after that. Thank you so much. Appreciate it.
1: That's our show for today. Thanks for joining us and we will see you next week. Bye everyone.
5: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something you need to get off your chest? What is your outlet for working through the things that stress you out? Uh, you know, I, I do the crossword. That helps. I'm also, I also go to therapy, you know, and I say, uh, this week I don't want to make any progress. She's like, ugh, that's what she said last week. We all carry around different stressors, big and small.